Good. I'm Andreas Gestrich. I'm the present director of the institute. And it's a great pleasure for me to welcome you all, the delegates of the uh, conference. And I'm, I'm really very pleased that we could have at least one part uh, of your uh, big conference here in the Institute. Uh, I'm sorry, um, our, as you see, our room has limited capacity, and so we couldn't open it for all, but I'm sure um, we will have a very interesting evening. Perhaps just a very few words about the Institute, and not all of you will know the place where you are at the moment. Um, the German Historical Institute is part of a foundation uh, which is sponsored by the German Ministry of Higher Education and Research, uh, the, the foundation German uh, Institutes in the Humanities Abroad. And these institutes have sort of their origin, the, the oldest one in the 19th century, the others are a post-Second World War uh, invention. Uh, it was, they were set up, the first one in, in, in Paris, uh, then in London, uh, to re-establish uh, better academic relations in the not-so-easy field of, uh, of history between our uh, partner communities. And this one has particularly uh, its roots in an yeah, initiative by emigre uh, historians from Germany who found rescue in Britain and who wanted to uh, liaise again with their German colleagues. But now the process of globalization has taken place also in this foundation and we have many more institutes now worldwide in, in Tokyo, in Washington, in Bayreuth, in Istanbul. So we are a network now of institutes uh, uh, spanning quite a few regions of the world. And uh, global history and empire history is also one of the uh, topics we, we do here at the Institute. We have a small but very effective research team here, and we do global history with about two, two and a half people. <laughs> uh, anyway, but we do research in Africa, India, and uh, on wider fields. So this is also one of our, our main topics, and we are a, an institution who, uh, which, which basically functions for German students who want to either study British history or empire history or any other field where they need to come to London and use the, the archives in London as a sort of a centre. We give advice and uh, they can work here and uh, some of them even get money from us uh, while they are here in London. So that's basically, in very brief sentences, what we do, and we run a huge library, and you will see that later on when we uh, go to the reception, and you're all very uh, welcome to join us afterwards for a glass of wine and uh, some food uh, amongst books, <laughs> which is not normally allowed, but uh, today, tonight. So I'm very... Please, that you're here, and I hand straight over uh, to Peer de Vries. Ja, ich werde erst etwas auf Deutsch sagen. Es ist ja das Deutsche Historische Institut, und man hört nicht oft ein Deutsch Englisch reden, dann kann man auch so gut ein Holländer Deutsch reden hören. But the rest of my introduction, which will be <laughs> extremely brief, will be in English. I don't think it's much use to invite three specialists and then have a chairperson who talks and talks and talks. That's no use. We, we have three persons. Let me say something about the procedure. We will discuss the problem of empire in alphabetical and feminist order, which means that Regina Grafe will start, 
then Fred Cooper will talk, and then John Darwin. Each of them will talk for about a quarter of an hour. Then they will be discussing amongst each other, and then the floor is open for discussion, and the entire uh, audience, which is numerous and elitist, it's a small select group, of course, I hope you realize this. 320 people are not allowed, and you're in, so there's some dignity involved. Every, everyone who has a question just stands up, gives his or her name, and then we can discuss. But first, I don't think it's much use to introduce people. The best way people can introduce themselves is by introducing themselves, so I'll leave it to them. Then I cannot make any mistakes. First, we, <laughs> first we give the floor to our three speakers. We begin with Regina. Okay, so my name is Regina Graf. I work at Northwestern University. Um, and um, I was asked to say a few words here, or rather I was asked to participate in a panel and I was told, well, you just have to sit there on the panel and then they said, well, you have to actually say something. So here I am um, and I'm trying, I think what I want to do is to think about empires and colonies really in the context of global history because that's less, uh, at the end of the day what brought us here. Um, but of course, global history, to look at, global, uh, at, at, at empires and colonies in the context of global history immediately throws up um, a number of problems. If global history is about connections, interactions, and comparisons, that is, it departs from an idea of paying equal attention to all and each, imperial and colonial histories, ex ante, bring with them a connotation of inequality, domination, exploitation, and asymmetries. So I think we better make sure that we have our idea of what the role of empire is in global history straight uh, right from the start. Um, so what I want to do here in my allotted 15 minutes is to probe into that connection between imperial stroke colonial history and global history, moving outward um, from actually the Spanish Empire, not only because it's possibly the place I'm least ignorant about, um, but because also I think that the treatment of the Spanish Empire within global history throws up a number of uncomfortable questions about how we think about empires within the context of global history. So let me make three somewhat um, outrageous claims. The first one would be that the Spanish Empire is curiously absent from most of our large global history narratives. The second one would be that um, I believe this is so because we don't actually know how to integrate it into the writing of history of empires and colonies. And the third one is basically uh, deductive. If, if one and two are correct, then I think we have a problem with our histories of empires and colonies in general. Let me start with the first claim. Is it really true that Spain is absent from global history or from that global history revolution that um, I think we're all part of? Now, we could, of course, simply argue that hegemonic structures survive in history writing uh, as much as elsewhere, and thus British and French, or more recently Chinese, imperial structures are accorded more importance. But it is clearly not true. For one thing, the most hegemonic academic structure of all U.S. universities um, are intensely focused on colonial Latin American history. Uh, and there's a huge literature about questions of transcultural history, for example, in, in, uh, on Latin America. But I would argue that they are not really in conversation with global history. 
Latin America um, is, and that's interesting, in this conference a little bit better uh, uh, represented than it was three years ago at the European conference, but it's still relatively marginal. The center of most debates in global history in the last two decades or so has been a rebalancing of Eurasian history into which African history is partially integrated. Focus, uh, the focus has been on, on getting out of that teleological assumption that Europe, the West, was on a path to imperial world domination all along. And the means of doing that uh, rebalancing has been to uh, think about the what I would call the hegemonic potential um, of various would-be or existing empire, empires in, say, 1500 or 1600 or 1700 uh, or 1800. And if one does that, one quickly uh, notices that, of course, China probably had greater hegemonic potential um, for much of the time, or as John has pointed out uh, in, in, in his wonderful book, After, After Tamerlane, that until, say, the mid-18th century, three blocks of empires... Uh, European, Islamic, and East Asian had pretty much the same, let me use that word again, hegemonic potential. So that rebalancing act across Eurasia, I think, is is a very good thing. But in that global history, the New World is generally basically omitted. Um, It is not entirely clear how something like reciprocal comparisons that have been very fruitful in the Eurasian context would be done in the New World context. In fact, Surprisingly, even North America um, only becomes part of these narratives when it becomes part of Europe. That is, it becomes an empire. The Iberian-American imperial world is relegated to the role of appendix of history. Spanish and Portuguese domination in the Americas is an accident of voyages of discovery, of the element of surprise that allowed a few hundred unwashed Uh, Spaniards to topple major pre-Columbian empires in Mexico and Peru. Um, It's an an accident of the devastating impact of old world disease in the new world that somehow allowed Spaniards to roll out the structure of domination before resistance could somehow regroup after the initial shock. It's an accident of the discovery of mineral wells that financed the empire, Um, And it's a chronological uh, accident in some way of the continuity that has been written into this of a reconquest, uh, from a reconquest of European Iberia from Muslim domination in 1492 that supposedly provided the ideological underpinning of an outward projection of a Christianizing and civilizing mission, civilizing and inverted commerce, of course, into the Atlantic world. The only global role that... Uh, of that development was that the discovery of mineral wealth also lubricated the expansion of more capitalist European empires, think the British, into Asia by means of getting their hands on Spanish silver. Now, let's assume for a moment that you agree with me that uh, the um, Spanish empire really has not found its place in our global narratives yet. Then I come to my second claim, which is Iberian-American empire is absent from global history because we don't know how to integrate it into our writing of the history of empires and colonies. This, of course, is ultimately uh, a question about what empires and colonies are and what they do. Um, And I think we should open up that perennial question um, yet again. Why? Well, for one, I think the story of accidental Spanish empire outlined above 
is historically unconvincing. Surely there were elements of accident, um, the voyages of discovery, the encounter between peoples who had no knowledge of one another, disease-driven demographic collapse in the Americas. But I think the other elements of that story have, one by one, pretty much been undone by Latin American or colonial Spanish-American historians. And yet Spanish empire, the Spanish empire is still surprisingly often described in terms of a fairly old-fashioned materialist depiction of empire. So it's supposed to be a structure that extracts resources from the colonies, the mineral wealth, silver, um, labor exploitation of indigenous and African labor. Um, and it is not surprising that even in very new and, and extremely good general survey texts of imperial history, the trope of the supposedly particularly brutal Spanish colonialism is still pretty much around, rooted in some sort of reconquest mentality. Let there be no doubt, there was silver, there was labor exploitation, both of indigenous and African labor, and there was violent domination. This was an empire, right? But the role of silver was not what it was said to be, and it's, I think, very hard these days to make a sensible case that imperial Spanish governance was conducive to particularly exploitative and violent structures, again, always in a comparative colonial context. I think it's actually rather the opposite. We know that wealth extraction to the metropolis was actually very low. Um, we know that forced labor regimes were marginal to the Spanish imperial economy until the 18th century at least. Uh, think about Mexican, Mexican mining, uh, which consisted entirely of free labor. Um, existing forced labor regimes were also relatively less harsh. Again, let me, let me uh, uh, emphasize that we're talking here about emp uh, empires and, and comparisons. Um, and, of course, the Spanish Empire had no, at no point a proper repressive machinery. Now, we could say the materialist view of imperial history has been rejected in other contexts, too. So why could... Well, we should probably try and see how Spanish imperial history fits into cultural histories of coloniality and postcoloniality. But here the problems abound, too, I think. Relatively ahistorical definitions of identities, race, gender, ethnicity, found quite quickly on the rocks of Latin American history. There were high rates of miscegenation, as we know. Religious syncretism was intense. And racial and ethnic boundaries were crossed more easily than in some of the other European empires. So when we look at cultural connections and interactions, uh, rather than try to impose state static identities, what we see is fluidity and adaptation rather than imperial domination, I think. Um, I don't want to go into that here much, but I think there might be a reason why post-colonial studies have had a hard time uh, in certain fields of Latin American history. Now, we could get try and get out of the mess by thinking about old and new empires, as many do. Old empires were multi-ethnic, loosely governed. They treated different populations differently, but not necessarily in a racial way. Um, new empires are driven by 19th century ideas and some sort of, we could probably say, perverted enlightenment uh, sort, of, sort of idea became racialized, um, suffered the increasing tension between an idea of European nation-state with citizenship and an imperial population that became... Uh, by definition, even more restricted in its rights just as the European citizens uh, acquired more rights. 
And then we could, of course, argue that Latin American independence uh, in the early 19th century simply saved the Spanish Empire from that particular predicament. However, I think, uh, not least thanks to people like Fred Cooper, we have all learned that this is a poor fit of European history. Neither France nor Britain, much less Belgium, were picture postcard nation states, uh, and the Enlightenment could inform more or less racist attitudes in equal measure. I think this is important because it complicates the maybe most useful way of describing empires that we have at the moment. And that is simply on focusing again on what they do or what they did. They incorporated lands and peoples and they differentiated between them. It is abundantly clear today that European empires, all of them, neither tried nor could impose uniform forms of domination and rule in their colonies. They depended crucially on local conditions, all of them, and their fates depended on the resistance or collaboration of uh, populations in the colonies. But I want to argue that here is the final difference and the reason why our notions of empire and colonialism fit so poorly in the case of Spain. What distinguished some imperial states from others was not if they were nation states projecting outwards or an older form of monarchical, if you want, rule. It was where the rule was conceived of as hierarchical as a hierarchical exercise or not. The problem, in my opinion, is not that we misunderstand colonial development so much, but that we misunderstand state development in Europe. We impose the move towards a hierarchically ordered strong nation state as the only option. And then we find that no state approximated that ideal, but some got closer than other. However, I argue, Spain at its center or its periphery always, until the end of the empire, functioned in flat hierarchies. Power was devolved to jurisdictional fragmented units, towns, historic territories, corporate bodies, all invested with shares of sovereignty. That was not simply a leftover of old regime governance. It was an alternative path to European statehood that had strong consequences for the imperial uh, notion. One consequence was, as many Latin Americanists have pointed out, Spain never really had colonies. It never thought, until very late in the 18th century certainly, about the Indies or the Americas as colonies, and I think that's not just semantics. When the most famous 18th century Spanish tract on economic government in both the Spains and the Indies, both in plural, um, written by, by Jerónimo de Ostares, compares diligently uh, how France, the Netherlands, and Britain govern their colonies, and it says las colonias, um, it juxtaposes that to the Spanish governance of the American possessions, or las Indies. It never uses the word colony. Thus, Spain did incorporate, like all emperors do, peoples and territories. But because power was always located in local and regional bodies, rather than at the center, this incorporation was notably different in character. Spain also differentiated between different subjects. But it did not treat them unequally in a systematic way, at least in a sense of unequal that would have been understandable to contemporaries. Because sovereignty and political rule were organized in a polymodal, non-hierarchical way, citizenship, legal pluralism, and empire were surprisingly compatible in this Spanish notion of empire without colonies, which they were not in the French or in the British. So where does that leave me? 
I, I very much appreciate the recent tendency to stress the complexity and diversity in imperial rule within European as well as non-European empires. But I would like to stop the relativizing a little bit. Um, surely France was not the United Nation or Nation of the historical myth, and Britain was not the all-powerful capitalist empire once depicted either, nor was the Chinese empire much in control of its peripheries. But I suggest that what made the tension between incorporation of imperial subject and differentiation between or among their citizens and subjects so hard to maintain was that at the core, governance was still hierarchical. Power could be devolved, but it was the center's prerogative to devolve or not. Spanish governance was in its very structure less hierarchical. Power was not devolved. Local bodies, towns, territories, were convinced that they were endowed with their share of sovereignty. What do I conclude from that for the larger question? Well, the first, I think, obvious conclusion is that imperial rule and colonialism are not the same. I would say, I would call this an empire without colonies. The second conclusion is, I think... That it is very important, of course, as many historians have stressed, um, to understand the agency of imperial subjects. But we need to be a bit careful and not overdraw that particular um, strand. We need to restore, I think, the, bit, uh, a bit, the differences between different imperial structures that we have tended to pave over in an attempt to understand the local specificities of the interaction between um, empire and subjects. And the last one, uh, my last conclusion is my least favorite one. Um, and I don't like it, but I'm not getting around it, I think. Um, I think what I've come to believe is that what happened at the European Center mattered very, very much, even in those cases where it wasn't much of a center. Well, <clears throat> thank you very much. I'm not sure whether it's outrageous, but I think we have been present at the birth of the La Leyenda Blanca, a, a totally positive view on Spanish imperialism. We all are used to La Leyenda Negra, especially the people in the Netherlands, but this was the birth of a completely new view on the Spanish Empire. If people are not irritated by this... You don't know how. No, I, I get desperate. Mm. The floor is yours. Thank you. In the 1960s, the Nigerian historian Jacob Ajayi shook up his Western colleagues by suggesting that colonialism was a mere episode in African history, no more important than many others, leaving Africans ruling themselves afterward as they had ruled themselves beforehand. Ajayi was writing at the high point of African nationalism, and he sought to legitimate post-colonial African states as heritors of pre-colonial ones. The argument was never particularly convincing, for the division of territory, let, let alone the methods by which territory was, was governed, had been drastically transformed. But he did appreciate how short, in historical terms, the period of imperial rule over Africa was, 70 to 80 years, compared to the 600 of the Ottoman Empire, or the 1,000 of the Byzantine em Empire before it, or compared to the Iberian Empire as well. What if we applied Ajayi's idea of episode to China? 
We tend to write as if the Western ascendancy over China in the 1840s was part of the linear progression of history, an empire that had once had its glory days but had become archaic, to be humiliated in the Opium Wars, losing some of its best ports and coastal territories, its own political ideas and institutions collapsing. Such a view of China was standard fare in Europe and North America until recently, but is no longer plausible, both because of deeper research and because China is, again, a world power, with much the same borders as those asserted by the Qing dynasty in the 17th and 18th centuries. It, it has more to sell to the rest of the world and the rest of the world to it, now selling different products and buying African more raw materials rather than American silver. Some of China's problem areas are direct results of its imperial past, the Western Edge and Tibet, regions whose conquests have left intact Islamic or Buddhist populations who have their own way of doing things. Let's not get too carried away with the comparison of old and new China. Forms of governance, forms of economy, and patterns of interaction with the rest of the world are vastly different. But the imperial imagination of territorial unity made it possible, even after violent splits and long interregnums, to put back something resembling earlier Chinas from the Qin dynasty of 200 BC through nationalist and communist phases. The period of eclipse by Western economic development and Western imperialism does seem like an episode in Chinese history, no more durable than interregnums that occurred before. The flip side of this story is the significance of the episode concept for our perspectives on the space sometimes referred to, often anachronistically, as Europe. Here we get into a number of standard concepts that need further thought. Let's start with expansion of the West. And I mean British and French as much as anybody should, should identify this with Iberian. It is not helpful to argue that there was an inherently European impetus or capacity toward expansion. The problem in the 15th century was that the western part of Eurasia was a disunited uh, space. This is quite consistent with what Regina is saying. And others were doing empire, if not better, at least more solidly. China and the Ottomans, most notably. China is where the money was and the commodities, and the Ottoman Empire lay in between. The Iberian navigators started to go around Africa. That, that they did so was a reflection of weakness vis-a-vis -vis their own societies and other empires. Obviously, they made something of the links they formed. But the world of commerce remained polycentric for a long time, arguably until the 19th century. The great divergence of the late 18th and early 19th centuries was an historical break. But one virtue of Ken Pomerantz's interpretation is that it is rooted in particular configuration of empire resources, internal organization, and resource access. So that his methodology should allow us to look for different divergences and convergences across time. His great divergence may also be an episode in world history, and the form of capitalism that dominates the 21st century may not be be of the liberal variety, whose triumph has often been proclaimed, but a highly authoritarian one with a big role for the state that is ascendant in China and the ex-Soviet Union. India and Brazil may produce other variants too. Neither in its origins, its exclusiveness, nor in its consequences, expansion, a very revealing category of analysis. Second, the narrative that goes from empire to nation state. In fact, imagined communities of the 19th and 20th centuries took many forms, of which the national was one. It is better to think of a complex and changing relationship between empire and nation rather than a dichotomy or a sequence. Let's get rid of that damn hyphen between nation and state and ask what the relationship is. 
The construction of Germany after 1870 with a Kaiser, Caesar, and its Polish, Danish, and French-speaking territories, the composite and flexible nature of the British Empire with its subordinated colonies in Africa, its loosely incorporated dominions, its protectorates, its alliances with local potentates, its imperialism of free trade, and others. The Soviet Union with its multiple national republics, Japan with a great, greater East Asia prosperity sphere, Nazi Germany, an outlier in its very national conception of empire, and all the more short-lived for that fact and the United States with its outposts and occupations and reluctance to do colonies. We need to look at the entire repertoire of power and incorporation at a distance, not just assimilate it to an empire nation, an empire, empire, an empire nation dichotomy. The conventional narrative requires us to treat Austria, Hungary, the Ottomans, and the Russians as if they should have known they were outdated, even though all of them had some reformist tricks up their sleeves and none of them died a natural death. World War I was an inter-empire war in which national chauvinism was more consequence than cause. And the result of the war is that inter-empire politics reconfigured. Some empires undone, others taking on new mandates, imperial norms reinforced by being internationalized under the League. And even after World War II, uh, we risk teleology if we reduce the story to one of Europeans having nations and everybody else wanting their own. Most French Africans did not want national independence until a very late date. They thought states with populations of one to four million people were too small, too poor, and too weak. Most wanted to create a federation of French-speaking territories, with the French empire turned into a confederation of states with a common citizenship. The French government in 1959 even accepted under pressure that the French community would have multiple nationalities. We know that such ideas failed, but why were they available? at such a late date. One might say that France, finally giving up on possibilities of federation or confederation as former empire around 1960 or 1962, finally began to think like a nation state. Except that by 1957, with the European economic community, it had already started to think beyond the nation state. Three, we can also make more of post-colonial theory's virtues and get away from its flaws. The pathos of post-colonial theory is to juxtapose the sordid reality of colonialism against European pretensions to notions of progress, liberal democracy, and the nation form. To insist that colonialism wasn't just out there, uh, but was an intrinsic part of contemporary states. And that the categories we use today to analyze colonialism or anything else are colonial products themselves. The basic problem with post-colonial theory is that it hasn't provincialized Europe enough. In making a supposed European modernity the object of critique, theorists, if anything, have turned pretensions into icons. But what if one really did make European history more of a history among histories, claims to modernity more, no more than claims among other claims? 19th and 20th century Europe was immersed in struggles within and among many parochialisms and many universalities. Secularism was more often beleaguered than triumphant. Ancien regime and aristocracies didn't die out in the terror. The point is not that colonialism as an episode should be minimized, but it shouldn't be given meta-historical status. Can we write about colonialism while avoiding the, the ahistorical juxtaposition of a supposedly enlightenment Europe against its darker sides of colonialism and racism, abstracted from conflict and struggle over all such notions? Can we do better than posit a generic coloniality located amorphously between 1492 and 1962? 
A younger generation of historians is do, doing much better than gurus of theory in developing a dynamic picture of what happens in and across colonies and between colonies and metropoles, revealing connections among colonized people in Asia, Latin America, and Africa. African historians have shown how much colonization on the ground differed from ways in which late 19th century European colonizers represented themselves. The reality of conquest bears comparison with the Mongols, with new technology, a form of conquest based on inflicting terror and moving onward, picking up local troops along the way, leaving in the place little in the way of administrative structure. What substituted for administration was, was, uh, later on was vertical authority exercised through intermediaries referred to as chiefs. Bureaucratic rationality as a mode of governance existed mainly on paper. British and French officials soon realized that projects of remaking Africa, either in its own image or as a fully exploitable labor force, were with the, were, with the exception of some mining zones in southern Africa, too dangerous and too expensive. Telling the story of the end of European colonial empire in Asia and Africa will also look different if we tell it as an inter-empire story in a long time frame, not just as a story of an obdurate colonialism versus a nationalism that was the wave of the future. Ever since the fall of the Roman Empire, there have been attempts to build an empire on Rome's scale on the European continent and attempts to block such efforts. The line runs from Charlemagne to Charles V to Napoleon to Hitler. European powers, Japan too, feared other powers would, would, would monopolize overseas resources and sought to preempt such actions with their own colonizations. What has limited such projects has been, for the most part, other empires. The story comes to an end in 1945, for all the Western European powers lost World War II and ceased to be a threat to each other. Its two winners, the US and the USSR, would continue their conflict in different ways. Such conjunctural considerations help us to understand how much the game changed after 1945. But the first reaction of France and Britain was to try to make empire more productive, to earn hard currency to aid in recovery, and to make it more legitimate. Both processes meant reconfiguring relations with indigenous elites and empowered the latter to escalate claims for political voice and economic resources. In the French case, for equality with the other citizens of France. The decolonizations of the 1950s and 1960s, violent or not so violent, took place in this dialectic of reform and claim making in which concepts of nation, sovereignty, federation were up for grabs, not given goals. Our story stubbornly refuses to fall into linear trajectories. Bureaucratization and modernization, the heavyizations that shape our understanding of post-1960s Africa or Asia prove misleading descriptors of historical processes. While national independence seemed at first glance to represent the triumph of what Ben Anderson considers the horizontal notion of community, nations of equivalent citizens, the reality of politics within Africa and between Africa and Europe or North America has more to do with vertical relations of patrons and clients, of militias of youth assembled by a big man, of shadowy networks that connect French presidents to African rulers. Europe became European in a way that had not been before, freed as it was from the burden of empire rivalry, able to agree in economic cooperation and in a union of states that France had tried and failed to construct out of its former empire. We have here an empire to confederation story that complicates the idea of making nations. The study of empires is to study something that is big, but not global. The study of empires makes us conscious not only of arrogance, 
but of limits, other empires, frontiers, fraught relations with intermediaries, not just resistance. Thinking about limits makes us think about specific mechanisms of control. Empires were about severing connections as much as about making them, one reason why the narrative of globalization is so misleading. And they couldn't necessarily control the connections they did make, trading diasporas and political networks developed in relation to empires, but not necessarily within them. The category of not empire was present in the diversity of human imaginations, creating a variety of political forms, but also in the composite and limited nature of empire power itself. The idea of nation, of a sovereign people, as an alternative to empire, represents a powerful idea, both liberating and murderous. But in most of history, national sentiments and national institutions had to play out within the context of powerful empires capable of either manipulating or extinguishing smaller, more homogeneous entities. The post-1960 world represents a break, above all, in generalizing the fiction of a world of equivalent nation states with their flags and seats in the UN. But equivalence is a fiction and a misleading one. We need to come to grips with asymmetrical power relations without dichotomizing them between dominant and subordinate, free and colonized. Note, for example, the relative ease with which France, Britain, and the Netherlands rid themselves of colonies after World War II, economically and ideologically. But the self-conscious discarding, first of explicit racial distinction, and then of colonies, did not mean in reality the end of inequality, exploitation, or invidious distinction. It does require us to think dynamically about such processes, not getting stuck in a labeling game. Equally important is to note how the process both enables and eclipses historical imaginations. Quite strikingly, notably in the French case, is the thoroughness of expunging colonialism from historical memory, as if empire were a temporary aberration in a history of a republican state. But if we get away from our dichotomous urge, we can write the history of reconfiguration of power relations across space. Here, too, we run into questions of limits. Empires made history, but not as they wanted to. Empires were always on the verge of becoming something else, and other polities, nation states, kingdoms, tribal confederacies, were on the verge of becoming empires. One of the main interests of the, of the concept is at its edges, about the limits of historical empires, but also about the limits of the concept of empire as an analytic category in a wider field of political forms and of political imaginations. Thank you. Well, I don't think that anyone can claim that there was not much content to this talk and not much speed. <laughs> I, I personally had the impression, but we will talk about it later on in the discussion, that you were going very far in deconstructing the idea of the nation state and the European state and European uniqueness. I, I noticed that everyone is extremely fond of doing this, but I think there are really reasons to say that there was something quite strange in European imperialism, quite strange in European state and nation building, and to not focus on that, I think, could be dangerous. But I'm, I'm not hired here to think. No. I'm hired here to <laughs> chair. Certainly so not. The floor is yours. Thank you. Well, I'm sorry you're all dying to sink your teeth into the first two speakers, but I'm going to delay you for a few minutes. Um, and I think you may be struck after hearing me by the close and densely argued and scholarly nature of the first two papers 
by comparison with the stratospheric and reckless generalizations which I'm going to offer you in the next few minutes. <clears throat> I'm going to try and make five points, and if you haven't been brought to a state of apoplectic disagreement by the end of those, then clearly all of us have uh, collectively failed. Let me begin by um, a, perhaps a very simple point, some of which I think perhaps has been anticipated a little bit, though you may disagree in what Fred has said. The first is I think we need to drastically recalibrate our idea about the place of empires in history. The typical uh, historical approach is to treat empires as being a kind of somewhat unnatural, even monstrous interruption in the course of human history, which was driving inevitably and, of course, righteously in the direction of national self-determination for all. So that very often empires are equated with the rise of peculiarly megalomaniac rulers. They are seen as being uh, inherently, as uh, many historians still feel obliged to tell us, inherently evil and oppressive uh, formally for government. Now, it seems to me that however far back you look in world history, you're going to find that empires are the almost the standard form of political organization above a very low level. And that uh, empires, far from being, as it were, rare or unnatural, are in fact the default mode of political organization through almost all of world history, right up until almost yesterday. And the extent to which nation states have become the universal norm uh, in our thinking about how the world should be organized, well, we know perfectly well that's only really come into existence since 1945, and as a result, primarily, not of as well discovery of the beauties of nation-statery, but of a very, very peculiar geopolitical formation in the world since 1945. And if that geopolitical formation were to change, who knows where the nation-state might be. Now, if I'm going to claim that, the, that empire is the default mode of political organization, of course, we're going to say, what do you mean by empire? And the logic of my position is to construct an extremely broad and very generic uh, definition of empire, and that's what I'm going now to suggest to you. Historians, it seems to me, have wasted not just gallons, but whole oceans of ink struggling to define empire in more and more precise terms often with the agenda of proving that other people have empires, whereas you have a nation-state. <laughs> and the result of this has been all those fatuous debates about whether an empire should be um, defined as control or hegemony, uh, and whether uh, other kinds of rarefied superstructural features should be treated as being central to the nature of empire. It seems to me that you can actually define empire quite simply it's where you find a ruler or an ethnic group is able to extend its influence and authority, and the two usually go together, beyond this were ethnic boundaries and beyond environmental and ecological boundaries, period. Now, you can refine that a bit by saying that uh, any moderately developed empire also displays the feature of a spatial and functional hierarchy, which is systematically organized to benefit a core zone. Now, once you've said that, it seems to me you des you've described most empires, and uh, I, I await the, the violent resistance I'm sure I'll encounter when we come to discussion. The Danish Empire. Yes, the Danish <laughs> Empire. Now, the one feature of empire which has been currently fashionable, um, and here I may encounter disagreement even on the, from the table, 
uh, is to insist that empires in some way embody difference. And some of you will be depressingly familiar with that voguish term that one reads in so many books these days, the grammar of difference or grammars of difference. The suggestion that empires are about a kind of systematic creation of difference. Difference, it seems to me, is not very helpful, partly because it's never very clear how different difference is. What is different? What makes difference? What kind of difference is actually being talked about, often left studiously vague? Secondly, um, there's also the problem that in most empires that one sees, the way in which peoples are ruled tends, of course, in some cases, to tolerate differences, in other cases, to repress differences, and, in and frequently also uh, to... Um, uh, to encourage them. All three characteristics are visible in most, as it were, relatively complex empires. So as far as the glass of difference is concerned, is it half full or is it half empty? It seems to me a fairly barren kind of inquiry to pursue. Now my third point <clears throat> is really turns to the question of global history, because this is after all a a conference devoted to global history, and we've, in a way, been instructed, I suppose, to think how empires connect with global history. Now, I suppose that the core concern of global history is ultimately with uh, that wonderfully vague term, connectedness. And connectedness can be rendered something more concrete by thinking about it in terms of three forms of connectedness. That's to say, the exchange of goods, the exchange of ideas, and the movements of peoples. Now, it's perfectly obvious that those three phenomena lie outside the control of any political authority uh, to a very large extent. And secondly, that these movements of ideas, people, and goods create dynamic conditions, uh, whether they are at a regional level, or at a continental level, or at a global level, which are precisely the conditions in which empires, particularly those which are well endowed with resources for state building, can expand, and which also threaten others with contraction. So the question then is, how do empires cope with these forms of global connectedness? Now, it seems to me that they uh, operate in three different ways. They seek to encourage those forms of connectedness which they think are going to be beneficial to them. They seek to exploit forms of connectedness to extend their reach, their range, their power, their influence. But, of course, they also seek to contain or crush forms of connectedness which they think are likely to benefit others more than them or to threaten the coherence of their own system. Now, that seems to me to offer the global historian a very considerable advantage because... If you're confronted by the, what is often thought of as being the great problem of global history, which is its archival deficit, the imperial archive, defined very broadly, allows the historian to gauge the significance, the weight, and the contemporary understanding of these forms of connectedness far more accurately than if he's thrown back or she's thrown back, as people often seem to find themselves, upon either one-off cases or indeed as often happens in global history, upon individual experience as a guide to what's actually taking place in the world. 
The imperial archive, it seems to me, broadly defined, is the way to get at these things. Because, of course, it is precisely the agents and collaborators of empire who took a most consistent and continuous uh, interest in how connectedness in its various forms was actually working, how to contain it, control it, encourage it, promote it, and overall and generally surveil it. So, in that sense, it seems to me, one can draw a very simple conclusion that global history is very largely empire history. Let me come, because I'm sure you are uh, uh, eager to um, open the debate, to my last point of all. I want to turn lastly to the question which uh, Fred ended on, and that is the moment when we fast forward to the end of empire after 1945. Now, of course, it's often said that after 1945, um, in a perhaps a rather untidy way, an imperial world order gives way to a nation-state world order. Well, of course, they might say there's some nominal level a truth in that. At an ideological level, as I said at the beginning, uh, we now regard the nation-state as the universal norm. But before we go very far down this road, it seems to me we do need a reality check. Of the 200-odd sovereign states in the world, well over two-thirds are actually fragments of empire. They weren't the result of some form of Darwinian evolution in the direction of creating a nation-state. They are the fragments of empire hewn roughly often out of uh, the imperial system, which has uh, imploded, collapsed, broken up, or devolved. Now, the consequences of this, of course, are very much to be seen in every part of the world uh, where we find um, large numbers of states which, uh, which uh, exhibit three, I think, striking features. The first is uh, a vast mass of states with what you might call a solidarity deficit. Secondly, a large number of states which have virtually no means of filling that solidarity deficit because most of the maneuvers or means or mechanisms through which these solidarity deficits were filled in the case of European states are no longer available to them. They can't go to war with each other for a start. And thirdly, um, these states are nevertheless forced to behave, and indeed their rulers seem to want to behave, as if they were, in a sense, real nation-states, the models modelled on that strange historical set of accidents which threw up nation-states of the European kind in one part of the world. So even if we bring ourselves forward to the present day, and here I echo in a sense, rather more crudely, what Fred has said, whether we like it or not, we live in a world that empire has made, and we have barely, of course, begun to investigate the impact that empire has made on that world.